is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Your stories are some of our favorites. And today we have on one of our regularly featured guests, and that's Stephen Rosiniak. Many of his pieces have been published in the great Chicken Soup for the Soul books. This one he wrote during the time his daughter Tracy was a high school gymnast. Here's Stephen. She didn't make a sound. You have a daughter, the doctor announced, before whispering something else to the nurses. His eyes silently spoke volumes as the OR team quickly went back to work. Not even a minute old, and already I felt such love for her. And still, I was absolutely powerless to help my baby girl. But I'm her daddy, I thought to myself. I'm supposed to be able to protect her, to keep her safe. And still, all I could do was watch from the sidelines and do nothing. It was out of my hands. She came home from the hospital five days later, and for a while, I kept her safe, for as long as I could, until the time came when I couldn't. Destiny demanded that Tracy would one day become a gymnast. After all, she began practicing for the sport while still sleeping in a crib. Twice, Karen and I found her roaming the house long after she and her stuffed animal friends had been tucked in for the night. Determined to learn how this feat was being accomplished, we waited and watched, and eventually we saw our not-quite-two-year-old scaling the sides of her crib with the amazing agility of Sir Edmund Hillary repelling Mount Everest. Rather than running the risk of her plummeting during one of our nighttime escapades, we thought it best if she made the transition from crib to big girl bed. But in hindsight, how could we have known that her perilous climbing adventures would one day give way to her spending her autumn afternoons on blue matted floors as a member of her high school gymnastics team? In retrospect, I now view her early years as a time when the risks she faced were comparably minimal to those before her today. A time, not so long ago, when her blankie and her daddy's arms were more than enough to keep her safe. In the moments leading up to the start of the competition, both teams were warming up out on the floor. A dread began to grow within me as I watched the slow and calculated maneuvers being executed atop the balance beam by two gymnasts as they tweaked their routines in last-minute preparations. Tracy, however, wasn't one of them, at least for the moment. Instead, I saw her stretching on the floor in her new competition leotards, or leos, as she'd recently corrected me. Soon enough, though, she would be out there performing, and once again, I'd be helplessly watching from the sidelines. Admittedly, what scares me the most is that when Tracy competes on the beam, she's on her own, potentially at risk, vulnerable. And through it all, I feel as I did in the moments following her birth. 
absolutely powerless. And for me, this is a problem. I'm her daddy. I'm supposed to protect her and to keep her safe. After all, this has been my job forever. But today, once again, when she begins her routine, all I can do is watch from the sidelines and do nothing. Once again, it's out of my hands. For almost two hours, she was out there, on her own. And when she mounted the balance beam, I held my breath and watched. A twist, a turn, a handstand, some fancy footwork, a surprising cartwheel, a few leaps, and then an aerial front-tuck somersaulting dismount. All safely executed, her hands raised in the air, her smile radiant. She nailed it again. Back in the stands, my breathing resumes. She's getting better every day, honing her talents, mastering her skills. Later, on the ride home, we rehashed the entire meet, and I realized, at least for the moment, my little girl was safe. And my grudging admission, she's not so little anymore. How did this happen? I mean, when did my little crib-climbing escape artist suddenly become the 16-year-old Leo-wearing gymnastics competitor anyway? I'm well aware that my fears of watching her perform, especially on the balance beam, are in part a metaphor for all the concerns that I'll always have for her well-being. It's inevitable that as she grows older, she'll be confronted with so many of life's obstacles. And when she is, I'll always be there, still a little nervous, sometimes worried, but always proud of her, just like I am today. And so, for the rest of her gymnastics career, I'll quietly remain another spectator daddy sitting in the stands, continuing as she competes, to both cringe and celebrate her determination and independence as she has the time of her life out there on the beam. And thanks as always to Stephen Rosiniak for the work he does for us, and thanks to Faith for producing the story. And my goodness, what a story it is of a father, well, in the end, just having to do nothing sometimes and watch and just support his little girl and be there when she falls. That crib-climbing escape artist is now walking the high beam and performing on the high beam. It's a great metaphor for life. And in the end, what a great father-daughter story. So much is written about fathers and sons, not enough about fathers and daughters. And of course, mothers and their sons and daughters too. These things we spend a lot of time on here on Our American Stories. We love your stories, your father-son, father-daughter, mother-son and mother-daughter stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites, your stories. Thanks to Steve Rosiniak, his story, his daughter Tracy's story, here on Our American Stories. (laughs) 
And we continue here with our American story. Since being released in 1983, Francis Ford Coppola's film adaptation of S.E. Hinton's coming-of-age novel The Outsiders has found continued popularity and has achieved official cult status. And now in what is surely one of the most interesting pop culture intersections of all time, hip-hop artist Danny Boy O'Connor from the rap group House of Pain, best known for their iconic 1992 anthem Jump Around, purchased the Tulsa, Oklahoma home where much of the Outsiders film was shot. Here to tell the story is the man himself. Here's Danny Boy. My story really begins Los Angeles, California, 1983, when I went unknowingly to a movie that I had never heard of, uh, Woodland Hills, California, called The Outsiders with my friend Steve Sikulski, who um, just happened to read the book. I believe I was in seventh grade, and uh, so he was a fan of the book, and he wanted to see the movie. He said, Danny, you want to go see a movie with me? And I thought, sure, Steve Sikorsky, a uh, pretty cool junior high kid that I knew. So I figured, you know, if he likes it, it'll probably be something I like. But I had no idea what we were going to go see. I didn't have any frame of reference. And uh, on that full Saturday afternoon, we went in and saw the movie, and uh, I came out a changed man. And um, people ask me all the time, what was my fascination with The Outsiders? And the movie kind of hit me at a time where... I definitely felt out of place in, uh, you know, the San Fernando Valley in the 80s, being a native New Yorker who um, was moved to California at the age of six and kind of always had like a, uh, a strong connection to the East Coast. Uh, so Southern California in the 80s looked a lot different than New York City did. And I don't know, I just always felt, you know, separate and apart from, and I, and I got that from the movie as well. And I... Grew up, my father went to prison when I was two months old. Um, we moved in with my grandparents. My mother worked nights at the Chase Manhattan Bank. And so I never really had that foundation or that family, you know, uh, support or love. And, you know, I carry, that, I carry that with me, even though, you know, I've had a pretty extraordinary life. Um, you know, th that, that foundation from the beginning has always felt unstable and so when I went to see the outsiders the first thing I noticed was that they were a fractured family a broken family and that um, despite that that they stuck together and um, had each other's backs and I felt at a 13 or 14 year old's mindset was that if I could just find that kind of friendship out in the in the world that maybe I wouldn't feel so bad about my home life and, and, and the way we grew up and so that was the original hook for me for that movie. That being said, Matt Dillon was the coolest dude on the planet at that time. Um, the cast was incredible, whether it's Patrick Swayze, Ralph Macchio, Tom Cruise, Darren Dalton, C. Thomas Howell, uh, Diane Lane. They were all, you know, this was the first time I was really seeing them. Actually, Leif Garrett was the big star in my mind, uh, looking back, because he was a 70s star. And so really was the only notable name that I knew prior to, to The Outsiders then, Matt Dillon. But that being said, the, you know, the movie was, was, was the coolest thing I'd ever seen, and it, and it stuck with me. I immediately went home and then dug out a, a denim jacket that I may have had from the 70s in New York and uh, kind of uh, adapted that Dallas Winston, Matt Dillon swagger for the next few years. 
But uh, as fate would have it, I didn't really have much of a game plan coming out of high school. I, I dropped out in ninth grade. I hung out for the next three year years at high school. Never really went in too much. Uh, got in a little bit of trouble with the law. And during the time when most of my friends were graduating high school and heading off to college or, or embarking on a career, I had no idea what I was going to do. And so I... Uh, Connected, reconnected with a high school friend who had had a record out prior to uh, me and him reconnecting and um, we started a band called House of Pain and at the time in hip-hop there wasn't anything on the landscape like it. We were really, you know, uh, kind of the next wave of, of, of hip-hop in the early 90s but at that time there wasn't any really, there wasn't really any hard white boys and we were like Irish American, tough white kids and that was our shtick and that our, our deal was is that you know we were the kind of like you know boom bap punch you in your face type of hip-hop uh, that was missing you know as 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 the 80s turned into the 90s and, and grunge was a thing hip-hop needed to reinvent so us and cypress hill were kind of like the next face of that in that moment and so was very successful with that and sold a few million records and traveled all over the world and made a million bucks but um you know, I like to say what goes up must come down. And it wasn't only, you know, five years later that I was back to where I started even less because, uh, you know, doing music for a living, especially as a creative director and, and an artist more than I am a musician, it kind of left me empty handed when the career was done or the music career was done in that moment. And uh, I really had no other life skills. And I unfortunately turned to drugs to deal with that pain. So I spent the next, you know, five to six years high on methamphetamines and, and drinking around the clock. And it wasn't until about year 2000 that I got sober. I stayed sober for about three and a half years. And, uh, you know, first year was good. Second year, I started getting complacent and, and a little my attitude started to come back and my expectations started to come back. And my, my, you know, I started to think, well, this is cool, but I don't know how long I'll stay. By year three, I started convincing myself that I only had a drinking problem, and then drugs were clearly my problem, but if I just drank, how bad could that be? And uh, maybe I don't need this, this, this sobriety thing. And so at around three and, three and a half years, I decided to have a drink, and it was pretty much the worst decision I'd ever made. It took me a two, a one week to go back on drugs, and took me three years to get, make it back to, a, to, a, to the 12-step program. And it wasn't until 2005 that I was able to get uh, draw another sober breath. And in 2005 is when I began to put another group together called La Coca Nostra, which was kind of a super group. I took pieces of my old group and another group called Nonfiction and a few uh, undiscovered up-and-coming rappers, and we put a group together under that name, La Coca Nostra. And it was on that fateful tour that brought me to Tulsa, Oklahoma. So when we got to Tulsa, Oklahoma, we were stuck here for three days. And when I say stuck, I mean stuck. That day was not really special. I didn't know what to do. We just kind of hung out in Tulsa, grabbed a few bites, and then called it a day. But day two of the three days that we were here, we began to get extremely bored. And so I called down to the concierge desk in the lobby and asked them to um, call us a cab. They laughed. Uh, there was no such thing as cabs. We're downtown Tulsa at the time, and it was, it was pretty much pre-Uber and Lyft and all of those rideshare things. So they were able to get, they were able to wrangle us up a guy in a van that took about an hour and a half to get to the hotel. And then when he got there, we asked him, can he take us on a proper tour of Tulsa, which he proceeded to say yes, and then took us to the Woodland Hills Mall. 
And uh, I can assure you that didn't go over so well with a bunch of 40-year-olds <laughs> going to a, to a, what was at that point pretty, uh, you know, it, the mall was kind of shuttered as well. And so we went there uh, for about an hour, and as we were heading back to downtown Tulsa, it occurred to me, Tulsa, Tulsa, Tulsa. Why does Tulsa sound familiar to me? And it was at that moment I had the epiphany, and I said, excuse me, driver. He said, yes. I said, was The Outsiders filmed here? And he almost like locked up the brakes. He was like, turned around and he said yes absolutely he says why do you know it I said I not only know it I love it do you know where any of the filming locations are and he said I do know where the drive-in is so we proceeded to drop off the rest of the group I grabbed my road manager and said you're coming with me I grabbed my laptop and at the time even in 2009 there wasn't much on the internet to go on it's not like today 2009, I looked up for locations for the Outsiders and I found a Flickr account or two and I found a site called Tulsa TV Memories which had a few of the locations and the addresses were given up. The address I was most interested in was the Outsiders house which was not given on that website but they did tell us where the drive-in was and it did tell me where the park in the movie was, the uh, Crutchfield neighborhood. And so we went to the drive-in and I couldn't Im imagine that this thing was going to look anything like it did in the movie but not only was it, uh, it felt like it, it hadn't changed a bit and my mind just started to, to just melt really because it, it looked exactly like it would have in 1982 when they were filming and exactly like it did you know in the 60s when they were trying to describe it so it was pretty good stuff anyway so yeah we got that driver to take us around Tulsa we were able to find the drive-in we were able to find Crutchfield Park which was the park that Johnny stabs the Socia in and they have the confrontation with the Socias in and then by finding the bark I was able to find the house and by finding the house, this is where the, 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 my life starts to take a different turn. And when we come back, we'll continue with the story of Danny Boy O'Connor from the rap group House of Pain, his journey back into his life, the movie The Outsiders, filmed in this town, Tulsa, in Oklahoma. The rest of this story continues here on Our American Stories. For more, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and sign up for the podcast. And we continue here with Our American Stories and the story of Danny Boy O'Connor. And my goodness... What a story it's been so far. No father, a hole he's trying to fill because of that. Sees this movie, sees this character in The Outsiders, played by Matt Dillon, of all people. And the next thing you know, a little bit later, he's in a big hit band, House of Pain, and then drugs. And then one day there's a stop in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where The Outsiders was filmed. And the next thing you know, there he is in front of the house where that movie was filmed. Let's pick up where we last left off. At the time, it was for sale for $40,000. I uh, can assure you, you can't buy anything in Los Angeles, California with the word real attached to it for $40,000. Uh, I could not believe that this house, one, would be for sale. 
two would be forty thousand dollars, and three that that nobody understood its true value as a an American classic and a and a, a really a, a sacred uh, hallowed grounds. Um, that being said, I knew that I was in no position to buy a house in Tulsa, Oklahoma, living in Beverly Hills, California, and that I should just kind of take a photo and, and, and soak it all in while I was here and then and keep it uh, keep moving. So that's exactly what I did. I took a photo out front. Uh, we played Kane's Ballroom the next night, and I also found out that there was a hole in the wall that uh, Sid Vicious had punched in... Uh, 1978 when the Sex Pistols played Caden's Ballroom and I put both of those photos on Facebook which was pretty much a new thing as well and the response I got was incredible and in particular everybody was fascinated with the outsiders and that the house was not only one still on earth but they couldn't believe that it was still on the Warner Brothers lot which I had to correct a lot of people that it is no it is not on the Warner Brothers lot in Burbank it is actually still here in North Tulsa and I made sure I did not tell anybody that it was for sale because I didn't want anybody else buying it. Never again thinking that I would end up buying it five years later. But that's exactly what happened. So after finding the house, we kind of I, I realized that there's some there's 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 some real cool stuff across America, and so it really started here for me. But the, I started to urban explore, and I put a group together called the Delta Bravo Urban Exploration Team. And what that is is. Um, it's a page I started on Facebook, and I put the outsider's house first, and I put a before and after photo, told people the basics, you know, the outsiders, 1982, here's the house that the Curtis brothers lived, here's the address, 731 North St. Louis Avenue, and here's a before and after photo, and I found a lot of uh, support and made a lot of friends through this uh, web page that we started. And um, I found that there was a lot of like-minded people uh, all over the world, but here in particular in the U.S. that were at a certain age where they were like really looking back fondly on, on all of the pop culture locations and, and, and all of our collective history, which is really pop history. I mean, I was, if, if I'm honest, I was raised by a television set and the radio. I mean, this is where I got most of uh, the stuff I was after, you know, as a kid. This is where all my information came from. So in 2009, I used the tour bus as my personal, like, pop culture location vehicle. And I figured if I'm going to be on this tour bus and everybody else is going to be, you know, doing their thing, I'm going to get highly caffeinated, walk around every city we go to, and I'm going to look for uh, culturally relevant um, undiscovered locations and so that was the birth of the Delta Bravo urban exploration team I, again it just was like a cool hobby that I could do in my sobriety that really cost me nothing and it was a, I was also able to kind of like see all the, the the undiscovered locations that I had always wanted to see like where Mary Tyler Moore's house was in Minneapolis where the son of Sam was arrested in Brooklyn and and, and stuff like this um, and because of the success of that on, on the internet, uh, I, I got so much, you know, um, so many accolades and met so many cool people. We, we started to do it like uh, pretty, we took it pretty serious for a while. We were actually getting courted by a lot of companies in Hollywood. They were trying to turn it into a t television show. It never really kind of worked out uh, television wise, but the group kept growing and growing. So we started to go on group trips. And uh, meanwhile, I was still touring a lot. So I was going back and, and forth across the US. And year after year, a minimum of twice a year, but uh, sometimes three or four times a year, I would come back. Uh, um, whether on purpose or not, to Tulsa, Oklahoma, and I'd always make a, a mission or pilgrimage to see the Outsiders' house, and, and mostly some of the other locations as well. 
And what I started to notice is that year after year, this house was starting to deteriorate and that the neighborhood was starting to fall apart and that the Habitat for Humanity was coming through here and they were clearing out a lot of these, these streets and, and, and these houses, building new houses. Um, I always like to qualify that I am a fan of the Habitat for Humanities and what they do. Uh, in particular, making low-income houses, you know, affordable to people who wouldn't be able to afford those. Um, and that being said, I was worried that nobody recognized this house for really what it was, which was an American classic and a, and a cinematic masterpiece, uh, you know, part of, uh, of a bigger, you know, picture. And so at year five is when I got here and started to get worried. I started to think, well, what if they tear this house down? And what if nobody recognizes that what, what, what this thing really represents and what it, what it is? And it's on the fifth year when I started to, to ask myself the question, well, why don't you do something about it? And um, really, I have no expertise on any of this stuff. I was, just a, I was just a fan who couldn't imagine the world without the outsider's house. There was really never a plan or a blueprint or any of that. But what I did was meet a couple people here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. They not only saw the vision that I had, that this should be some kind of like, one, it shouldn't, it, it shouldn't ever be torn down. Two, maybe it could be restored and it could be somebody's house and we could put a little display or some homage to the to the movie that was filmed here in one of the rooms and the idea just kept getting bigger and bigger but what it, what ends up happening is we end up getting the the contact information for the owner who her husband bought the house uh, five years before I got here and they basically did a quick fluff and buff in hopes to use it as a rental property unfortunately her husband died he gives it to her in the will, and her and her sister moved to Florida because they were not native to Tulsa, and they had no reason to stay here once her husband was gone. I guess it was, they were kind of like absentee landlords. I mean, they were, they were trying their best to collect the rent, but the tenants weren't paying. They were eight months behind in their rent. The house was in terrible condition, and so by the time I found her in 2009, she was ready to sell. Uh, we called her. She told us she wouldn't take a penny less than $20,000. My buddy made the call, so he said he wouldn't give her a penny more than $15,000, to which she accepted. And at that point, I thought, man, I, we robbed this lady. I mean, we bought an American treasure for $15,000. I mean, where on earth can you buy a house for $15,000, much less the house from the movie The Outsiders? So yeah, so I buy the house for $15,000. I buy it sight unseen. I had never been in the house. I had peeked in it a few times. I had been on the outside of the outsider's house a few times, but never really knowing the true condition of the house and also never understanding. I, I'm, I, when it comes to you know, remodeling homes or anything that has anything to do with that, I have no idea what I'm doing. So I, this is not something that I would have been like predisposed to do or something that would have been a likely thing for me to do. I was just a passionate fan who couldn't imagine if they tore this house down um, what the world would, would be like without it. And so I ended up giving the tenants little by little over a month to move them out because uh, again they were eight months behind in rent and it cost me $4,800 to get them out. When I finally drove here a month later from California to see my new house, I ended up breaking in a back window because they did not leave me keys and I realized that this was the worst mistake I had ever made. And you just heard it from him, the biggest mistake he'd ever made, was it? Well, we're gonna find out the rest of the story in a minute, but what a story it's been so far. 
He was raised on TV and a tour bus. And for $15,000, he thought he just bought a piece of the American dream and certainly an American treasure. What happens next? Well, we've all gone down this road before in our lives, folks. Something we thought was an opportunity, then we thought was a big mistake. And a little bit further down the road, well, who knows what. But some good came of that big mistake. Danny Boy O'Connor's story continues here on Our American Stories. For more, go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter. And we continue with our American stories and Danny Boy O'Connor's story. He had just laid down 15 grand on a house in Tulsa, Oklahoma, a house with the Outsiders. His favorite film, the film that had more influence on his life than any other. And we all have that film or that book or that song. Let's return to Danny Boy's story in Tulsa. Clearly, the owner knew a lot better than I did the condition of the house. If there was any worry of me underpaying for this house, it was quickly erased when I got in here. I mean, this house was in shambles. The only thing this house needed was a brand new house, and uh, it was in terrible condition. And then the fact was that it didn't, it didn't look like it had been cleaned up in the last hundred years. They were hoarding in here, and it was in terrible condition, and I panicked. And at that point, I thought, well... Basically, I just flushed $20,000 of my $28,000 life savings down the drain. I had no work in the foreseeable future for me. We weren't touring at that time. And I basically just put 80% of whatever cash I had left on earth into this house, which was a complete teardown. And so my next thought was like, look it, I'm going to ask for help. And uh, I often say, you know, I'm a six foot six alpha male. And it's hard to ask for help when people assume that you should be able to do this type of work. But the truth is, I don't know how to do this type of work. And it was very... It was very humbling, and I and, and I had to really humble myself to, to, to admit that I didn't know what I was doing, and I was in over my head, and that perhaps if there were a few other Outsiders fans on Earth like me, um, maybe they could help me find a way to turn this into a to a museum, and that was my thing. I thought, well, I can't ask for help, and then this is my my fort or my new home in Tulsa. That didn't make any sense to me, why people would would, would be interested, because I wouldn't be interested in that. But I would be interested if somebody was doing a museum to help pitch in, whether that was a gift in kind or some cash or whatever. And so we put a GoFundMe together, and we started to raise a little money, and immediately the press got a hold of the story. And if I thought I was one of few Outsiders fans on this planet, it didn't take long for me to figure out that I was uh, clearly wrong on that. I mean, immediately the city council showed up to the house, the mayor of Tulsa showed up at the house, the press came out of the woodworks, and it just kept growing and growing and growing, and before long, you know, here we were on our way to turning this thing into a museum. Now, at first I want to tell you it was going to be a movie museum because I had read the book, but it was only a few years prior that I read the book, but this book again, it is, it is an American classic. 
It was written by a 15-year-old girl here in Tulsa, Oklahoma, by the name of Susan L. Louise Hinton. The book is 51 years old now. It has never been out of print. At the time when uh, Susie got her publishing deal, they agreed with the publishers that it'd be best if nobody understood that she was a, a female, so they called her Essie Hinton to be ambiguous with that. She was failing out of English when she wrote it and got a D-plus in creative writing, and I think that's incredible because the hope is there, um, you know, for everybody uh, that great things can happen despite maybe a few bad marks in a few, in, in, in a, in a few um, classes. And really the book is w what brings most people to the house. Uh, people love the movie without a doubt. And that movie, you know, basically launched the Brat Pack, which is all the actors we've mentioned before, you know, Tom Cruise, Patrick Swayze, Matt Dillon, Ralph Macchio, C. Thomas Howell, Diane Lane, directed by Francis Ford Coppola. Uh, the book seems to have way more of a, a draw or is equal, if not bigger, draw than 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 the movie, and that was learning experience for me as well. Because on an average day, people come by this house all the time to um, to stop by, and it's usually you know uh, a 50 year old, a 40 year old, two 17 year olds, and a 12 year old, and it's usually somebody's going to seventh grade, and it's required reading. Their older brother and sister read it five years ago when they were in seventh grade. Uh, their parents remember reading it when they got to junior high and they also were there to see the movie or saw it on HBO when they were kids. And it's really the whole family tree that comes to enjoy this whole story from the book to the movie. And now I'm told it's being turned into a, a Broadway musical, which is also incredible. So, so much stuff has, has transpired since that first day of me buying the house. But what ended up happening is that the whole community kind of just puts this thing on their back and runs with it. Um, plumbers came by and helped me plumb, roofers roofed, gardeners gardened, um, tile layers tiled, and contractors contracted, and everybody just started to do what they could do. And it looked like, you know, people would say, hey, listen, on Sunday after my daughter's soccer practice, I can come by and work for two hours for free if you don't mind. And I said, like, yeah, it would be fantastic. And so really, this is a communal project. You know, I get thanked everywhere I go around town and around Oklahoma for, uh, you know, saving the outsider's house, but I feel disingenuous by accepting that praise. And I always tell them, and I think they think I'm being, you know, humble or being, you know, coy or whatever. But the truth is, is that this, this thing happens because everybody pitched in. Um, and helped, and it was usually the people with the least to give, given the most. Um, that being said, we we our number one supporter, um, cash wise, is the author Essie Hinton herself, um, and Jack White also, you know, came by and. Uh, told me he loved the, what we were doing and, and loved the book, he loves the movie and loves Tulsa and, and he got us over the hump. We were stuck at $45,000 on our GoFundMe and we were looking for 75,000 and he said, I wanna give you $30,000 from last night's show and get you over the hump, which he did that and um, it changed everything. I mean, we were kinda, we were, what I thought would take six to eight months to complete, took us three years. Um, two months ago, we finally were able to cut the ribbon in between those last three years, we've done three events to support the house. We're both Ralph Macchio, C. Thomas Howell, Darren Dalton. All of them in the movie had come back one or two to three different times for three different events to support this. Um, and really what I found out is this thing has become like a community center. 
um, and had a really good trickle-down effect. I mean, when I got here, the lawn was to my waist uh, and trash all over the place. We cut the lawn, got it down to size, we removed all the debris, we cut down trees that had, you know, fallen in upon themselves, and we basically cleaned this house up so nice that everybody else in the neighborhood started to get the drift, and they started to clean their stuff up. And before long, it, it changed the face of the neighborhood as well. And so if you come here in North Tulsa, on the corner of Independent and St. Louis, you'll, you'll definitely, uh, you'll see what I'm talking about. And it's, 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 it's a sight to behold. There's a lot of, uh, there's just so many different layers to this thing. I would have been bored a long time ago if it was just a house from a movie. And as much as I love the film, um, and love the book. There's so much more greater at work here. Um, I love Tulsa, Oklahoma. I love uh, that a 15-year-old girl wrote this while she was failing out of English and got a D-plus in creative writing, was really going through a rough patch, and she wrote this masterpiece. And this masterpiece is different than all others because it really, literally is the book that starts the young adult category. It was the first time that a young adult ever wrote about being a young adult for young adults. and. If I'm not mistaken, that is the most successful category of books now on the market. Uh, for me, it's changed my life. I, I spent the first, let's call it, first 45 years of my life trying to build my career and, and, and promote my brand and, and stay relevant in that way. And finally, it was a breath of fresh air to discover that this thing could use a, a, somebody to champion it. And instead of championing you know the the fragments of a, of my shattered career or whatever you know uh, in in music that I was able to parlay all that experience that I thought was like of no use in the end and kind of pivot out and put it into Susie's legacy and, and in particular saving the outsider's house and and by by taking this on um, it's opened my world to a whole bunch of other areas. Um, we're looking to do weddings here. We, we bring school children through on the uh, Monday through Friday. So schools will read this at seventh grade. They will go to the Circle Cinema, which was also uh, in a, a historic movie theater here that's 91 years old on the original Route 66. And it was also featured in the movie. They show that movie to those seventh graders. And then the seventh graders come here dressed as greasers and socialists. And they get to experience the the, the, the house, the museum, and I know that they get truly inspired because they don't have a lot of role models to look at and to say, hey, this person is from my school or my city or my town, and they've became successful, and they, they, they're legends, and make no mistake, Essie Hinton is their, that's their legend, that's their, that their mentor. They look and they go, this, this little girl did this here, and it gives them hope, and so for me, I found a whole new purpose here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, I live here now full time. I moved from Beverly Hills and I've been here for two years and it only gets better for me. This town has changed uh, tremendously in the last 10 years for the better. Um, there's a ton of cool things here between Route 66 and Kane's Ballroom and the Drillers Baseball Stadium where the Dodgers double A team plays. Uh, there's good food, good people, and, and affordable gas. What more can you want? And you can buy a beautiful home here for $150,000, which, tell me where else you can do that. So, I'm Danny O'Connor. I'm the owner of the Outsider's House, but I am the executive director of the Outsider's House Museum. And, uh, yeah, this is my American story. And what a story. Thanks to Danny Boy O'Connor for telling it. 
And thanks to Greg Hangler for putting this together. By the way, make sure to go to theoutsidershouse.com to learn more. Take a visit if you're driving across the Midwest. Stop in Tulsa. And my goodness, he took a stop in Tulsa, all right. And he called it his home. This New York boy, fatherless, chases his dream, ends up in L.A. L.A. is not his home. Pops down $15,000. He thought it was a big mistake. And of course, it became the most purposeful thing he ever did in his life. And he found meeting there and found, well, a family there. And as he put it, what a great place to go. Good food, good people, and affordable gas. Danny Boy O'Connor's story, the story of so many things in this country, but in the end, a story of finding home. This is How American Story. For more, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and sign up for the podcast. said you wanted to know how to get Capone. Do you really want to get him? You see what I'm saying? What are you prepared to do? Everything within the law. And then what are you prepared to do? If you open the ball on these people, Mr. Nash, you must be prepared to go all the way. Because they won't give up the fight until one of you is dead. I want to get Capone. I don't know how to get him. Want to get Capone? Here's how you get him. He pulls a knife, you pull a gun. He sends one of yours to the hospital, you send one of his to the morgue. That's the Chicago way. That's how you get Capone. And you're listening to Sean Connery and Kevin Costner. And of course, that's the classic, The Untouchables. And the writer of those words, and my goodness, what words, is David Mamet. And his new book, Chicago, is just terrific. And it's a novel. And David is also a terrific playwright, and he has written such classics as American Buffalo and Glengarry Glen Ross, which itself became a classic film. He's also written and directed his own gems, House of Games, a classic about conmen, Homicide, The Spanish Prisoner, State of Maine. And he's also won acclaim for several screenplays, including The Verdict with Paul Newman, Wag the Dog, The Postman Always Rings Twice, The Untouchables, Hoffa, and The Edge, which, by the way, get it on Netflix. Anthony Hopkins and Alec Baldwin. It's terrific. Well, we had a chance to sit down with David Mamet earlier, and here's our recorded conversation about his book, Chicago, and about his life. David, in this book, one of the characters, central characters, is the city itself, and it's a city you grew up in. What is Chicago? Tell people who've never been there, give them a feel for this city. How's it different than San Francisco or New York? Because it's not New York and it's not San Francisco. No, people said, I think it was Mencken who said that was the first American city that wasn't European was Chicago. And uh, I've been thinking a lot about this because, you know, I wrote the book and there's certainly a, I mean, it would be un-Chicagoan, but accurate to say there's an ethos there. But I was thinking perhaps of something different. Perhaps it's something to do with geography. Every time I go to to San Francisco, for the first hour, I'm saying, honey, send my clothes. I love it here. And after about four hours, I'm saying, yoke me out. Get me out of here. It's just something about the energy there that's it's odd. Maybe it's because of where I grew up. And then I think about the Los Angeles, think about the geographical energy here. 
that's this little spit of land which is artificially maintained between this uncaring desert and this uncaring ocean. And there's a very bizarre kind of life that goes around. And if you think about Los Angeles literature, what there is of it, almost all of it takes place at night. It's, you know, Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett and Joseph Hansen and novels about mistaken identity and people not knowing who they are. It's all the same book. And it has something to do with geography. And if you go back and look at uh, Richard Henry Dana, you know, writing about landing on the coast here, just the south of Santa Barbara and whatever that was, 1820 or 1830, he says the same thing. He says that the people didn't really live there. So there's something odd about these two cities to my sensibility. On the other hand, Chicago and New York have an internal energy that I think comes from geography. I mean, they're the confluence of a lot of, um, uh, in, in both cases, of a great body of water, a great river system, and land transportation. That's why the people settled there. And there's, I think, something intrinsic, I hate to say in the rocks and stones, but maybe it is. But what do I know? Yeah, we did a terrific hour on not the Chicago fire, but what happened after, David. And by the way, it was an interesting story why the city built, burned down, because it had grown so fast in only 30 years. And all these buildings were crowded together in a long, arid summer, and poof, it goes up in smoke. What was remarkable, David, was how quickly Chicago rebuilt the energy and the power of the spirit of the people, the practicality and the just the grit of these people. It was remarkable. Yeah, well, there's always been a great energy. You know, it's been a town of working people, you know, and, and New York has been a town of merchants and, um, uh, uh, and plutocrats. You know, that, the, that's, that's just what it is. I mean, to the point now where they're today, there's no lower class and no middle class in, in New York City. But Chicago's always been the working people. Yep, and and let's drill down a little bit on your childhood in Chicago because you grew up here. This this place is in your blood. Uh, talk about if you can, David, your dad, because I think so much of your writing, uh, I think, comes from that relationship. At least, maybe not consciously, but certainly subconsciously. Talk about that. Well, my dad and his brother Henry, um, all four of my grandparents are, are immigrants. They all came over from uh, Poland, which was then. On the passports, it says Russia, Warsaw, Russia, and the Khrubichev, Russia. It was back and forth. At that time, it was controlled by Russia. Poland didn't exist for those 20 years. And um, my uncle was born over there. My dad's three years younger. He's born right over here. And they moved to, to Chicago from Brooklyn. And um, my dad was raised by a single mother, my, my grandmother. And most of his life in the Depression. And she didn't speak English very well. And so they were very poor. And he worked real hard. He got in, got out of the army, and he went to a junior college. And then he got into Northwestern University Law School. And I, I think he I think he might have forged his uh, credentials to get into Northwestern University Law School. And he graduated first in his class because he just he was wicked smart. And um, he went to work. He clerked for Arthur Goldberg for a while. Then he worked for um, Elmer Gertz, who was a very famous Chicago attorney. So there's that. So that before Levittown, there was this community, I think it was the first planned community after the war, called Park Forest, Illinois. And so I think I was like, one, we moved down to Park Forest, and there's early Kodachrome films of these wonderful little brick houses the size of somebody's small garage today, you know, and everybody was happy as a clam, you know, because these were poor immigrant kids, depression kids, war kids, and all of a sudden, because of the GI Bill, and the uh, uh, the building of these uh, uh, developments, they could have a house. Something was just the, the impossible dream. And then we moved to a community called South Shore, 
it was a little Jewish enclave of a few blocks between a uh, Catholic neighborhood and a black neighborhood. Black, black neighborhood was the other side of Stony Island, and the Catholic neighborhood was the other side of 71st Street, and there was like five square blocks of Jews living there, and we used to get beat up all the time. And um, the, uh, the neighbor was kind of interesting. Some interesting people came out of that little, it was called South Shore Highlands, I think. I I came out of Larry Ellison, who founded Oracle, came out of there, and Sherry Lansing, who was the head of Columbia for many, many years, came out of there, and uh, uh, Seymour Hirsch of the New York Times came out of there. Several other people who did rather well coming out of this little dinky enclave. And when we come back, we learn what happens to David Mamet, and my goodness, how far he came from this little dinky part of Chicago. More with our conversation with David Mamet after these messages. Chicago, Chicago, that toddling town. Chicago. This is Our American Stories, and we continue our conversation with novelist, playwright, screenwriter David Mamet and his new book, Chicago. We're talking about his life and the town he grew up in and David entering high school. And so I went to the public schools when my last couple of years of uh, high school. I moved in with my dad, my stepmother, Judy. I went to a magnificent school called the Francis Parker School and started, became friendly with the family that owned Second City. And I started working as a, as a busboy at Second City. So I'd see three shows a night of improvisational comedy, which really gave me the bug. And then uh, there we are up to date. Talk about, if you can, the influence of your dad. That is psychologically. You know, it, it sounded to me like he was one of those old school tough guys and nothing you could do would quite measure up. You, you have a quote in, a, in an article in New Yorker where you said, the virtues expounded by him were not creative but remedial. Let's stop being Jewish and let's stop being poor. Talk about those kinds of words. Well, you know, I, I think about my dad many times every day with thanks. And he grew up in a family without a father. His father deserted the family. And so he was raised by a marvelous mother, my grandmother, whom he adored. But he was a, a little bit of an old school father. But the, the most more important thing is that he was a magnificent role model because he worked like a dog. He would work all day and come home and he'd change into his pajamas in a bathrobe and then eat his dinner sitting at the dining room table while working on the brief for the next day. And one day he was working really hard. He was very anxious. I said, you know, Dad, I said, you know, don't worry about the results. You're doing your best. And he said, they don't pay me to do my best. They pay me to win. So a lot of times I'm thinking of giving up and the times that I don't give in to giving up. Uh, I, I remember, you know, like, like him, I got the best job in the world and I have a talent for it and it pays the rent. So I, I better work hard at it. You know, there's a quote in that other New York, that New York article I told you about that was, I think, telling. You say, quote, uh, your time at the Hull House Theater in Chicago. It was the first time in my confused young life that I had learned that work is love. Talk about that. Well, Hull House there, there was a great theater run by a man named Bob Sickinger. And all the community theaters around the country were doing Charlie's Aunt and the Impossible Years. And once in a while, if they were really 
bold. They do the importance of being earnest, you know. But Sickinger was doing The Brig by uh, 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 Kenneth Brown and the Three Penny Opera and the Maurice Scal plays. And he just kept everybody there all night rehearsing. And we all knew, I don't know how he knew, but we did, that when we were doing those plays, there wasn't any better theater being done that night any place in the world. It was just, it was just pure love and, and, you know, people hurried home from 12 hours at their straight job and spent 12 hours working with Bob. It was, it was marvelous. One of your colleagues said, we invented this myth of the Chicago theater scene. What made the Chicago scene so great was that no one cared. The audience didn't care. They were profoundly indifferent to everything we did. There is real freedom in that, isn't there, David? Well, there is, but you know, I don't know who said that because I don't know whether that's that, true. That was Gregory Mosher said that. Oh, Greg said that. Yeah. No, but no, that's not. That's. I think that's a little bit poetic because what I remember is quite the opposite. When I had, you know, me and Billy Macy and Steve Shack, the Patty Cox, we had our theater over on on Halstead Street, and um, people would come up to you on the street, neighborhood people, and they'd say, "Hey, there was a good play last month, Dave." They understand that they're entitled to have a good time, and uh, no one's asking them to be esthetes. But rather, we're grateful for them to show up. And if they say, geez, that was great, I'm going to tell my friends, what could be better? I don't think they were indifferent. I, th- I think that two things made the theater scene. One was the audience, and the other one was uh, Richard Christensen of the Chicago Daily News. And what, what were your thoughts about critics as you were a young writer coming up? I mean, it, it's, 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 uh, they're assholes. You know, I mean, they were then, they are now, but there are exceptions. And a couple of the great exceptions came out of the city of Chicago, and one of them was Roger Ebert, rest in peace, along with Gene Siskel, who did a lot to shape American movie making, and the other one was Richard Christensen of the Chicago Daily News, along with Glenna Sice of the Sun-Times, to encounter critics who said, wow, this is great, thank you, here's what I liked. They understood themselves as part of the theatrical process, rather than uh, as, as people who are given a, a free ride uh, to CARP. Well, you've done something that very few people have done. We've had some novelists make their way to screenwriting, and that's happened quite a number of times for Mario Puzio. I mean, we could name a lot of folks who've written novels and written great great screenplays. But you go ahead and you start this thing called screenwriting, which is so different, David. It's such a different talent. So many actors have a hard time going from the big screen to the big stage. It's such a different craft. Um, How did you, did you just do it? Did you just have a sense for it? Uh, Talk about that transition. Well, I worked hard at it. You know, when I was a kid, I went to the Neighborhood Playhouse School of Theater in New York for a year. And before you came, they gave you a reading list of about 50 books. So, of course, I read them. I loved them. And a lot of them were by the Russians and uh, Stanislavski and uh, Vakhtangov and Meyerhold and Nemirovich Danchenko, and they all wrote a book. And some of them were by the people who'd worked with the Moscow Art Theater and then went into film. And I was really fascinated by their theory of filmmaking. And what they said was, the audience understands film as the juxtaposition of images. The image doesn't need to be inflected. The juxtaposition tells the story. The famous example is a young woman, shot one. A young woman, her head is down on her arms. She raises her head. Shot two, a judge sitting at a high dais wraps his gavel. Okay. Example two, shot woman, shot one, same shot, young woman, her head on her hand, she raises her head. Shot two, 
uh, half seen through a door, a baby standing up in a crib crying, right? So the, the idea we get from the first is hearing the verdict, and the idea we get from the second is a mother's attention, but the first shot's exactly the same. So if you look at what great film actors are doing, they're doing damn little. What they have is the great courage and understanding not to help the thing along. You write a lot about this in True and False, by the way. You have a, you have a lot to say in that book about acting, but one of the interesting things was, was what you had to say about the method acting and, uh, and a lot of the things that were being taught in New York at the time. And I don't think you were a terribly big fan of the method to be charitable, David. Well, there's nothing there. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a fake. It was Lee Strasberg and my teacher, Stanford Meisner, were the, both the babies of the group theater. And, you know, they were both started out actors didn't do well. So they became directors and theoreticians and they formed two schools, uh, the Meisner school and the Strasberg school that were an attempt on their part, legitimate attempt to understand what acting was because they were drawn to it. They loved it. They couldn't do it. They tried to understand it. So what Lee Strasberg did, I don't think he did it on purpose. He just got very, very lucky is he had a, a, a beginning reputation. And so everybody in the country wanted to get into the actor's studio. So he would see a thousand actors and pick two. So who's he going to pick? He picks the people with the greatest talent, right? So they are going to reflect glory on the actor's studio, not from anything that he taught them, but from the fact that, that he chose them. Yeah, and so all of that psychological warfare, that the, and I studied with a couple of these characters, and they were more Svengali than anything else. I was repulsed. I had played basketball and played sports, and sports is all about activity and action. It's doing. And in large measure, these people were putting me on a couch, and I, I actually resented it, David. Well, it's terrible, and what it, it, it calls for a um, a codependence, uh, a folly between the teacher and, and the student, and the, the teacher has to you know pretend he's teaching something he may think he is, and the student has to pretend he's learning something he may think he is. But what he's really undergoing is shame, and so the only way that he can overcome his shame is either to just quit and say "fuck you," I'll figure it out myself, or to say "let me try harder." So what you see is a lot of actors who quote study the quote method trying harder, which all that does take you out of the scene. And when we come back more with David Mamet, we promise not to take you out of the scene. Indeed, we're going to put you in a scene as we go out. The movie Glengarry Glen Ross, based on Mamet's play. In this scene, Alec Baldwin is giving a motivational speech to some real estate salesmen in a rainy office in downtown Chicago. As you all know, first prize is a Cadillac Eldorado. Anybody want to see second prize? Second prize is a set of steak knives. Third prize is your fire. You get the picture? You laughing now? You got leads. Mitch and Murray paid good money. Get their names to sell them.
And we return to our conversation with author David Mamet, the book, Chicago. Let's pick up where we left off. You have a, there's almost a, a running theme in a lot of what you write, David, about the expert culture. And you have this great line. And by the way, long before you came to conservatism, there was a line I'll never forget you wrote. And I'm, I'm approximating, and I don't remember where I read it, but it said something like this. And you were speaking directly to me, who was trying to get direction from these gurus, when in the end you were saying, find it yourself, dummy. It's okay. And you said, if you want to learn how to act, uh, act. If you want to learn how to write, write. If you want to learn how to direct, direct. The audience will teach you. Uh, don't go to college. Don't listen to that professor. You were really encouraging all of us, young actors, young artists, young writers, to write in front of audiences as quickly as possible and learn from that experience. Which, of course, David, even though at the time you didn't know it, that's a very free market idea that the audience, the consumers, the market will teach. Yeah, well, I guess it, yeah, I guess it was. But, I mean, they certainly taught. I don't know any other way to learn how to write a, a, a play and to put it on in front of an audience. Because if you're writing for a teacher... You've just uh, uh, subjected yourself to slavery. You're saying everything's dependent. I'm not a free person. Everything's dependent on the opinion of someone else. When in fact, the opinion of the audience is not is not mitigated through intellectuality. They're going to give you, uh, like Billy Wilder said, ind- individually they may be dumb cuffs, but collectively they're a genius. Yeah. But, you know that. And when when you got to when your life and you're living your livelihood and your self-respect depends on a verdict from which there is no appeal you're probably going to start paying attention to it. And we're talking to David Mamet. His book is Chicago. It's a novel. Pick it up. The dialogue from the beginning, he'll own you. We're going to get to that in a little bit, a little bit more about his life. By the way, Mario Andretti's life, go to ouramericannetwork.org. It's up there. We finished it. It's beautiful. Billy Graham's life, that's up there. And Johnny Cash, tomorrow night is his birthday. And we celebrate it. We celebrate it every year. You're going to hear from Johnny. You're going to hear from Rick Rubin and a lot of musicians. It's a remarkable hour. OurAmericanNetwork.org. David, you write about talent and you write about courage. And you say this. You said, a concern with one's talent is like a concern with one's height. It is an attempt to appropriate prerogatives which the gods have already exercised. Talk about talent. I don't know what it is. You know, a lot of people... I, I'm doing a bunch of publicity because um, I just wrote this book, and so I kind of like people to know about the book. But I stopped doing publicity for years and years and years because it made me feel stupid. And I said to one guy, I said, one guy, I just started doing publicity. He said, why, why did you stop doing publicity? I said, because it made me feel stupid. And I said, well, and he said, well, that's ridiculous. I said, well, see. Because <laughs> what, I, what I realized, most of the questions that get asked are unanswerable. They're, in effect, rhetorical questions, which are statements. Right. Say, my God, how did you do that? It's a rhetorical question. There's no answer to it. I don't know. You know, it beats the hell out of me. I could sit down and try to figure it out, but it ain't going to help you. Now, one of the great geniuses of modern life, I think, is Bill Waterston, who did um, uh, Calvin and Hobbes, right? And I love Calvin and Hobbes, but Bill, later on in his career, did a, a kind of compendium, and he said, oh, here's how I got this idea, here's how I got that idea. And he just, he, t- he knocked the sheen off it. I thought, man, you're coming very close to talking me out of appreciating the, uh, I don't want to know how you did it. Right. And P.S., you don't know how you did it. That's so true. And, and then all the mystery's gone, and, and, and don't tidy it up for me, and don't explain what it all means. What's the, uh, the, the, just the worst questions for artists, and they're even worse for the audience, David. 
By the way, in that same thing on talent, you wrote this, a common sign in a boxing gym. Boxers are ordinary men with extraordinary determination. I would rather be able to consider myself in that way than to consider myself one of the talented. And if I may, I think you would too. Talk about courage, David. It's a, it's something that I think is in short supply. And I think you, in your own way, write a bit about that as well. Well, I mean, there's a great line in, in Three Kings where it's a George Clooney and He's head of a, he's in charge of some platoon and some go, about to go into combat. And the kid says, I'm scared. And George says, uh, well, you know, you got to do the act. You're going to get the courage afterward. And the kid says, that's fucked. And George says, yeah, you bet it is, but that's the way it is. <laughs> <laughs> so true. Let's talk about your, your faith walk, if we can. I mean, and, and you start to write in, in the mid-2000s about being Jewish and what that means um, talk about this ex- exploration into faith and religion. Well, I got married in 1991, and uh, my wife, who is a, she has a bunch of uh, Jewish ancestors on her one side of her family. She grew up in Scotland. Her parents are British, and they were of no particular religion. And she said, well, we have to have a Jewish wedding. I said, well, what an odd thing to say. Well, well why? Why is that? She said, well, you're Jewish. And I thought, well, gosh, that's true. So she started taking introduction to Judaism classes for uh, people not of, not, of, not of Jewish faith. And I started going with her class. I realized I don't know anything. I was raised in this uh, Episcopal reform movement in Chicago. It was completely assimilationist. And it was like, you know, it's like taking the bath in cold water with your clothes on. There's just nothing to it. And that the, the assimilationist streak of American Jews especially after World War II, is completely understandable. I mean, I was born in 47 and 45. They were throwing my people alive into ovens, for Christ's sake. It's no, it's no wonder that the Jews wanted to assimilate, but they threw out the baby with the bathwater. Yeah, uh, so we started investigating Judaism, so she converted, and we started going to synagogue and learned Hebrew and found, my God, this is this is a magnificent religion. And all you know, all of us red diaper babies who said, oh my God, the magnificence of the Inuit or the magnificence of the American Indian or the magnificence of the African American or the blah, blah, blah. Why is it that my particular ethnicity is the only one that doesn't have a beautiful tradition? And we found out uh, in effect that it does. And a pretty old one too, David, a pretty old one. And yeah. it's ama- I think it's fascinating that people go through this world not knowing who or what they are. And it must have been something to you to discover your own history. It was grand. I mean, the other thing about history is that the people who came over in like right around world, before and after World War One was my my grandparents. They left everything behind. I mean, the idea that one would know one's great grandparents or one's great uncle was unheard of. I mean, everybody I knew in my little community growing up. Their, either their parents or their grandparents were immigrants. They had no artifacts from the old country. They, they didn't have that many relatives from the country. If they had any at all, they probably either got killed by Hitler or Stalin. And the kids were being raised in this uh, kind of phony, baloney, fuzzy little bunnies uh, uh, reform movement. And Judaism was reduced to, quote, good works. It was, it was reduced to the Democratic Party. And when we come back, more of our conversation with David Mamet, author of Chicago. We're going to dig into the book. Right now, we want to throw to a clip from one of the great pieces of writing from Mamet, and it's the 1982 screenplay 
from the movie The Verdict. Here's Paul Newman playing Frank Galvin, a once promising Boston attorney who was fired from an elite firm because he was an alcoholic. This Irish Catholic guy, down on his luck, gets handed a case from a friend. It's an open and shut med mal case, and he should probably just take the money. But he goes to visit a girl in a coma, and he sees her, and his Catholic conscience is sparked, and he becomes a lawyer again. This is his remarkable closing argument. We become weak. We doubt ourselves. We doubt our beliefs. We doubt our institutions. And we doubt the law. But today, you are the law. You are the law. Not some book. Not the lawyers. Not a a marble statue. Or the trappings of the court. Those are just symbols of our desire to be just. They are, they are in fact a prayer, I mean, a fervent and a frightened prayer. In my religion, they say, act as if you had faith. Faith will be given to you. If we are to have faith in justice, we need only to believe in ourselves and act with justice. I believe there is justice in our hearts. Turn to our conversation with novelist, screenwriter, and playwright David Mamet, and we had left off talking about David's spiritual journey, and we continue now with our recorded conversation. I would assume that your 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 exploration into faith, almost inexorably, David, led you into a sort of a political transformation. One probably prompted the other in some respects, didn't it? Well, I think you're probably right. You know, for example, I'll tell you this. I wrote a book called The Wicked Son because I started thinking it's called anti-Semitism and the, and the Jewish self-loathing and the Jews. And I started thinking about Jewish anti-Semitism and Jewish assimilationism. I thought very long and hard about it. Wrote a pretty good book and Fran Lebowitz read it. And she said, oh my God, wait till you see what the left is going to do to you. And I thought, well, I don't know what you mean. I mean, you know, I'm on the left. I don't know what the left would find objectionable to about the book. But apparently some people got upset because I was telling the truth. And so the more I studied uh, 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 Judaism and uh, and, uh, Jewish literature and and the Torah, the more I realized that that's flat out the inspiration for the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, that it comes absolutely from a Judeo-Christian understanding of the world, and that that understanding has, has kept us together for and fighting for 240 years. Indeed, and 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 what's what's fascinating about this this journey of yours, David, is that ultimately you end up writing a, an article in the Village Voice, and I don't think anyone was prepared for that. And were you at the reaction? Well, I wasn't prepared for it because the article that the title that they gave to the article 
was the original title of the article was political civility because I, my rabbi at the time been speaking very very vehemently about about respecting each other's opinion and uh, uh, hearing the other fellow out and having the ability to tell the other guy's opinion back to him such that he says, yes, that's true. And so I wrote an article called Political Civility. And in the article, I said, I said I, I, I'm even being uncivil to myself. I said, for example, for years I've been referring to myself as a brain-dead liberal. I said, well, that's just not civil. So the Village Voice takes it, and they put a scare headline on it, yep. why I am no longer a brain-dead liberal. And all my friends became acquaintances. Let's talk about fiction, because this, this book, it's about so much. And I don't like giving away too much, but it's about a place. It's about a time. And I, I'm going to quote J.J. Johnston to you, because he's a great actor from Chicago. And he said of you this, Dave got hit with the gangster bag early. These crooks, most of them have pipe dreams. They can't do anything right. Like they say, these guys would F up a two-car funeral. And so these wise guys, this edgy part of life that was a big part of Chicago, well, it becomes a big part of your book. Uh, talk about why a piece of fiction now and why this book. And it feels like it's hitting so many of the themes you've been playing with your entire life. Well, I was just having a time in my life. I started writing one afternoon. You know, I just got sick of myself for being such a lazy swine and got to be four o'clock. So I started writing a little sketch about something rather in Chicago. The next day I wrote another one. After a while I said, oh, maybe there's a book here. And uh, when you grow up in Chicago, you grow up with, uh, you know, just like um, uh, in, in Naples, you know, you grow up, you're going to be expected to sing. In Chicago, the, the ethos, at least that we grew up with in my generation on the South Side, was the gangster ethos. That's where Al Capone lived. Your great-grandmother brought him groceries. He once gave a turkey to your aunt. Oh, that's where the cop, blah, blah, blah. That's where Dean O'Banion got shot. I went to high school across the street from the garage where they had the St. Valentine's Day massacre. And uh, I used to walk in the park where Nails Morton's horse kicked him to death. And that's kind of... But those were kind of like the the bumping posts, if you will, of of Chicago geography. It's all gangsters. Yeah, and and the the process of writing for you, uh, it, it's you know I, I have something here of you talking about how at least when you were writing movies, you hit it on file cards first, and then you said when the progression of innocent incidents is so clear that you no longer need the cards, then you're ready to write. And then we learn that you write very fast once that happens. That's true still for this and, and for you? Well, a, a, a novel's really, really different because you get, you get to muck about, you know. You get to expatiate a little bit. And, uh, but there's two things. They're equally important in a play and perhaps less equally important in a novel. In a play, there has to be the immediacy of the line. The line has to be beautiful and poetic and line has to make sense. The second one is every line has to put forward the plot. If both of those things aren't true, you might have a, a, an okay play, but you're not going to have a good, and you'll never have a great play. It has to do both things. Whichever you do first, you're going to have to do the second one second. If you start off and you write a plot of the play, you're going to have to go back and make sure that each line, each instance of each interchange stands by itself rather than simply being tendentious and putting forward the plot. And if you do the other thing, you write this great scene but doesn't put forward the plot, you either got to throw it out and start again or make it put forward the plot. Because all 
dramatic writing is about making the audience wonder what happens next. Yep. But you can make them wonder what happens next and also delight them in what's happening. Now you're writing a pretty good play. Yep. So you need, both of these things need to be done in a novel too, but perhaps the, the, the plot is not as important. You get, you get to say, oh, by the way. Yeah. You get to take detours. In fact, that's why people read. They want a good detour from, from now and then. But, you know, you're, you're almost talking like uh, Hitchcock was listening to Truffaut and, and on that great interview that we've covered once here on this show. I mean, Hitchcock was the master at moving that plot. and hurt. I mean, his plots hurtled along and the characters just hurtled along with them. Yeah, um, absolutely. And uh, talk and talk of do you, do you teach anymore, David? Do you have an inclination to teach? You used to teach. I'd seen you teach. It 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 it, it was really remarkable because you weren't a typical teacher. You weren't playing the Svengali game at all. You were an anti-teacher teacher, almost like a Bear Bryant. You were more like a coach than you were a teacher. And then you were pushing people out to do stuff. Uh, do you have any inclination to do that anymore at this stage of your life? Well, you know that's that's a, that's a very gratifying to hear you say that because I said you know. I don't have a lot of respect for most teachers. I've seen a lot of them, you know, both in the private schools and public schools, schools I worked at, schools I sent my kids to. Some of them are geniuses. Some of them are time servers, just like any other profession. But I don't think the fact that someone's a teacher entitles them to our respect flat out. Let's see how good they do. But what we remembered all through our lives is the coach. It's true. Our, we did an hour on Bear Bryant, uh, David, and we talked to people who hadn't been under his influence for 40 years every single one of them had a moment and a memory and it was all the same he taught me how to be a man he taught me how to dig deeper it wasn't the actual x's and o's it was something so much more spiritual it had a spiritual dimension to it and it was this guy seeing these guys capacity and that there was more inside them than they knew and uh, i just think there are very few people who have that gift and you had it, and I, I'm sure you still have it. And the question I'd always, I always ask people is when we have these gifts, uh, does God command us to, to apply those gifts? Um, well, so that, that's why I ask. These guys came to me last year. They're, they're doing some um, downloadable thingy called Masterclass. And they have a bunch of celebrities, actors and writers and uh, uh, physicists and blah, blah, blah. And they asked me what I do. And I said, and I thought about it. I said, yeah, sure. So I was in the, the studio for several days and um, they added it down to, I think, a five, it might be even five hours. And they prepared it magnificently. And they talked me through various aspects of writing and dramatic construction and uh, uh, so forth. And I'm very happy that I did that. And uh, I teach once in a while back at my theater company. I'm a member of New York, the Atlantic Theater Company. But um, I enjoy, I, I, I kind of enjoy it too much. You know, I, and, and I, I, I don't want to get in the kid's way. <laughs> well, that's so true. We felt, I felt that just sitting in on two in New York, that you didn't want to get in our way. And that shows a lot of faith in us in the end and not in yourself. Uh, David Mamet is the writer Chicago is the book. It's a novel. Pick it up at Amazon.com. Chicago, again, at Amazon. We'll put it up on our website and take a listen. And uh, David, thank you so much for this time. Oh, you're so welcome. We're done. Oh, boo-hoo. We're having such a good time. <laughs> it was terrific, David. And that was our recorded conversation with author David Mamet, his new book, Chicago. Go to Amazon.com now and get it. The dialogue crackles. It's everything you'd ever expect from a David Mamet novel or any piece of writing and by the way, you know his work from Glengarry Glen Ross. You know it from movies. We played a clip from The Verdict with Paul Newman. And of course, we're going to leave with another clip. But again, David Mamet, Chicago. It's a novel. You won't be able to put it down. Pick it up. 
at a store near you or go online. And again, the novel Chicago by David Mamet. And so we leave with a clip and go and pick up this movie on Netflix if you get a chance called The Edge 1997. And it stars Anthony Hopkins and Alec Baldwin. Hopkins is a billionaire, has a beautiful bride. And Alec Baldwin is a, well, he's a photographer with an eye for that young bride. There's a plane crash in the Alaska wild. Uh, Kodiak Bear is on the hunt for the party that's lost. And it takes the old man to teach this young guy how to fight this stalking bear or die. And here is a pep scene in which the older Hopkins is trying to stir the courage of the younger paramour played by Alec Baldwin. Oh, I'm going to kill the bear. Say it, I'm going to kill the bear. Say it. I'm going to kill the bear. Say it. Say I'm going to kill the bear. Say it. I'm going to kill the bear. Say it again. I'm going to kill the bear. And again. I'm going to kill the bear. Good. What one man can do, another can do. What one man can do, another can do. Say it again. What one man can do, another can do. And again. What one man can do, another can do. Yeah. But damn right. This is Our American Stories, and again, the novel, Chicago, and the author, David Mamet. Pick up the book however you can. <laughs>